Welcome to season one of the Comfortably Hungry podcast, where yesterday's dinner is tomorrow's history. If you're a peckish person who is curious about the history of food and drink, then you're in the right place. I'm Sam Bilton, a food historian, writer and presenter, and each season I will be joined by some hungry guests to discuss a variety of topics centred around a specific theme. It can't have escaped your notice that Britain, and indeed much of the world, is in a pretty rubbish place financially speaking. Just about everyone is feeling the pinch from the cost of living crisis at the moment. So that is why I have chosen austerity as the theme for this season. Now I'm not here to provide money or energy saving tips, as there are plenty of other podcasts and websites doing that very well already. What I plan to do with my guests this season is look at how people have coped or reacted in times of austerity in the past. We'll be exploring everything from food riots, heroic ingredients and the origins of some popular energy-saving devices. Although we are living in straitened times, there is no reason why the tradition of the comfortably hungry potluck supper can't continue, especially as the dishes provided are virtual after all. They may well be on the frugal side, but they will undoubtedly be delicious. So to whet everyone's appetites, I've invited my guests to bring along a virtual dish inspired by their topic. I'm sure we're all aware that there are a lot of dissatisfied people in Britain right now. Railway workers, nurses, the Royal Mail and even driving test examiners have all held strikes recently and further industrial action is planned in the coming months. Meanwhile, as the cost of living crisis continues, more people than ever are having to rely on food banks with the Trussell Trust Network distributing over 2.1 million food parcels between April 2021 and March 2022. From the Peasants' Revolt in 1381 through to the Hunger Marches of the 1930s, people have always found a way to air their grievances, particularly in times of social and economic hardship. Today I'm joined by Josh Sutton, freelance writer and illustrator. Thanks for chatting with me today, Josh. And um, we met a number of years ago, didn't we, through the Guild of Food Writers? And I believe you've now written six books to date, including Five Go Feasting, Guy Rope Gourmet, a camping cookbook, and Food Worth Fighting For. So, what was the inspiration behind Food Worth Fighting For, Josh? Um, what was the inspiration for Food Worth Fighting For? Well, that was that was that was my second book um and i wrote it for Catherine kilgariff at um at prospect books i had no idea about um food riots and the history of food riots and i forget now how but i was um i, I came across a riot called the newlin fish riots which took place in the um beginning of the 20th century down in the village of newlin down in cornwall um and it just kind of grabbed my attention. It was a fascinating little affair, uh, which basically lasted about three or four days, where the local fishermen took umbrage with off offlanders or off Cumdens who were coming down from East Anglia and fishing in uh, the Cornish waters. Um, and it just kind of unearthed this whole treasure trove, if you like, of, of food rioters. I was kind of thought, oh, if that happens. So I started to Google food riots and see what see what came about um 
And lo and behold, this country's got a, a huge, rich tradition of of, of, of food riots, of people um, protesting in the street, um, which kind of fits a bit with your your introduction to this podcast, really. Um, and it kind of got me thinking. Um, I found out about, um, like I say, the Newlyn Fish riots. I found out about the Elian Littleport riots that we're going to talk about in a little while. Um, and I found out about the swing riots. And basically, I kind of thought, there's, there's a book in here somewhere. Um, so I came, <laughs> I came up with the title, Food Worth Fighting For. Um, I, quite, I do that quite often. I come up with a title um, and then find that the, uh, the material follows afterwards. It's a fantastic title, I have to say. It really is. Um, I thought it really encapsulates what you talk about in the book, as you say, these uh, food rights, which I also knew very little about until I read your book. And it's amazing how far back they go, really, isn't it? It really is. And it tells a really interesting story. And pretty quickly, the thing that kind of sprung out at me really um was the kind of relevance of food riots and the relevance of because i wrote the book um well i must have started researching it about nine years ago to be honest it was published in 2016 um but i as i was writing the book then that kind of wave of food poverty um, began to hit the media um there was, the Trussell Trust were just begin, just about setting up at that time with the food banks and things like that. And I just thought there's commonality between the history and and today. You know, people are going without food. People can't afford to buy food. Um, and people are fighting for food. Um, so out of the title Food Worth Fighting For came the subtitle From Food Riots to Food Banks. Um, and there it was. That was the book that I had to write, really. <laughs> Um, the Ely and Littlepool riots took place in April and May 1816 as a response to hunger, poverty and unemployment. The protesters' slogan was Bread and Blood, which was inscribed on their banners. And they also brandished a loaf on a stick, didn't they? I was good. Yeah, I was just just going to. It was the, the slogan was bread or blood, um, which kind of offered the authorities a choice, really, I think, um, rather than bread and blood. Um, and yeah, the loaf on the stick that you mentioned, um, that actually dates back many, many years. Um, and quite often people would raise a loaf of bread on a pike or a big long stick, um, a bit like a kind of makeshift banner, if you like, in, in the midst of a, a, a food demonstration. And it's interesting that we co- we talk about food riots because that's what I googled and that's what I searched. But in many ways, I kind of, although I use the term rioters a lot in the book, um, I actually kind of think of people as, as protesters um, rather than rioters. So the notion of the riot kind of came a little bit later once the authorities took umbrage with the the gathering and unrest around the butter cross and the market squares. But yeah, um, Elian Littleport, 1816. Um, out of, I think I covered about a dozen different riots in the book, um, and Elian Littleport st- stuck out as um, um, quite a significant one, really, because the consequences were, were enormous. And the... Uh, the factors that led up to it um, seem kind of relevant today as well, actually. Yeah, Elian Littleport. Bread or blood, bread or blood, bread or 
I'm going to give you a quick précis of the events leading up to the riots to set the scene as to the causes of the ruckus. The early years of the 19th century were marked by social and economic upheaval. A prolonged war with France saw inflation soar and prices of food with it. In a bid to make the land more efficient, the General Enclosure Act of 1801 was passed. This saw much common land previously used by small farmers and labourers to raise their own livestock or grow vegetables falling into private possession. These large landlords reaped the benefits of the increased income from rent and enhanced productivity, but did not pass their wealth onto their workers in the form of higher wages. Most agricultural labourers during this period struggled to support themselves and their families, particularly as much of their work was seasonal. As a result, they were forced to rely on parish relief to supplement their meagre earnings. Wealthy English landowners lived in fear of labourers rising up against them, as had been the case in France, so sought to pacify them. A group of magistrates met at Speenham Land in Berkshire in 1795 and agreed that local parishes would make up the shortfall from the wages paid by the labourers' employers. The sum each worker was entitled to was calculated based on the cost of a loaf of bread and his domestic circumstances, such as whether he was married and had children. With workers receiving support from the Speenham land system, the landowners and large farmers had little desire or motivation to increase workers' wages themselves. But even the parish relief was insufficient and many labourers subsisted in a state of poverty it's easy to see why they were more than a little bit peeved with their lot in life. Hopefully that succinctly summarises the state of affairs in 1816, but there are links in the show notes and of course you can read Josh's book if you want to find out more. So Josh, why was East Anglia in particular a flashpoint for this type of unrest during the 19th century? Um, I think partly, partly geography, partly politics partly economics really um you 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 mentioned the enclosures there there was a a kind of physical as well as a political struggle going on for land in across the fens um basically as you know as as land was as the fens were drained to create more land um and enclosures came and took away the land uh, so there's a kind of there's a kind of pressure on on the local populace, particularly you know farming labourers and um, uh, and people on on low or zero income. So that kind of that kind of land pressure adds to it, and you know that's a geographical factor of um, of East Anglia really. Um, obviously, enclosures were going all on all over the place. Um, I think there was also you know, eighteen sixteen. I mean, what's kind of important to know is that um, in the years previously, the the, the notion of um, the market pre- marketplace and, um, and and trading in the market, um, it was a kind of different story back then. We talk about a um, a free market, and this is something you know. We talk about the free market, and this is something that I kind of 
began to become more convinced of as I researched the book. Um, when we talk about a free market, certainly in today's terms, we talk about a market that's free from government intervention. Um, but going back um, a number of years, um, centuries, then markets were different places. People would congregate around the market square or the buttercross um, and farmers and traders would bring their goods for sale and prices would be set by the public um, through the kind of haggling system or whatever. Um, so the basically the buying public decided what was an affordable price for butter what was an affordable price for flour um and things got along pretty well up to a certain point but then i guess over time as those negotiations in the marketplace became more vigorous um and perhaps more unsettled then they were seen to be kind of um, riotous on occasions and the local authorities would begin to interfere um, and bring in the local dragoons or um, the local militia to kind of break up the tumult. Um, and that kind of led me to thinking of the, this notion of a free market being a market freed not from government interference but from the public interference um, so that stallholders were eventually able to set their own prices and say that butters you know it's five shillings a pat of butter and and, and not your two so there was there was that change going on um, it became more and more difficult to argue and haggle in the in the marketplace as prices began to be fixed um, I think also in the um, the very succinct introduction you just gave, you talked about um, rising prices. The Napoleonic Wars had pushed that, had put prices up. Um, and there were also a number of uh, poor harvests. Inclement weather had brought um, poor harvests. So there's an issue of supply. Um, so there were a, basically a number of factors that, that kind of pointed out East Anglia as a, a particular flashpoint. So where did the riots actually start and what was the original motivation? Well, riots kind of had broken out across the region, really. Um, and kind of one of the earliest was uh, was a riot that broke out in Gosbeck, um, a small village where, where labourers took to breaking farm machinery, destroying farm machinery, which they saw as a, as a threat to their li livelihoods. Um, and of course... This notion of, well, basically years later in the 1830s, the swing riots um, erupted across the country, which were totally to do with destroying um, threshing machines and, and farms, farm, farm equipment, etc. Um, but there was also, you know, a, a, going back to enclosures, there's also a relationship between food rioters and... Um, and what were called the poaching laws or even the poaching wars um, as enclosure um, expands and access to land, access to um, to rabbits, to, to, to hunting um, is, is cut off. People are kind of forced to go, you know, they suddenly turned into poachers. Um, and and actually one of the, um, I think one of the goals of the, um, the villagers in the, um, in the village of Downham, they basically set out to, uh, free a number of um, people, that, a number of poachers that had been imprisoned in jail there. Um, so there were there were kind of a number of a, a number of motivating factors that uh, that brought people to uh, out on the streets really. Um, and riots they spread across the region, across the area as as word got out of unrest. And then you think of you know um, 
a, a time when perhaps not a lot of people could read. Uh, newspapers weren't really around. Uh, there was the odd broadsheet. Um, but you kind of think, how does the news spread? Um, and you touched on it, you know, farmers... Um, relied on on, on pooled labour um, and of course those labour pools would come from a number of different villages so um, you, you'd end up with you know um, a gang of labourers from four or five maybe more villages around and, and if something's happening down in Downham um, and the villagers from Littleport or uh, Ely um, are in the gang they're going to hear about it so kind of word spread word of mouth really. And what were they demanding? What did they actually want from the authorities? Well, they probably wanted they wanted a, no, a number of things. Um, I think you you mentioned the Spenum land um, system, which is where uh, um, basically people on on lower incomes could draw support from the from the parish. Um, that in turn enabled farmers um, and wage payers to keep the level of their wages down because they knew it would be supplemented by uh, by the local parish. So one of the demands was was higher wages, um, and again uh, another demand was for for kind of controls on the price of food, flour in particular, uh, beer in particular. Um, so basically, they were they, they were making demands for a better standard of living. That's what they were making demands for. And um, what happened in Littleport to make it the most notorious riot of um, of the period? Uh, so one, it spread, uh, and two, it lasted several days. I mean, a lot's been made about the role of beer in terms of fueling the unruly behaviour, certainly by the authorities. Was I mean was was beer and drunkenness really to blame? Um, well, in, in my in my opinion, it's an it's an excuse that was uh, invented by the powers that be. But it certainly certainly played a role. You know, at the time, a number of people were kind of involved in uh, friendly societies or benefits clubs, as they were called, which was a kind of um, self help mechanism. So people would pay in um, a little what little regular income they could afford um, into a, um, a kind of communal pot, um, and then could draw support in times of hardship from that pot. And the uh, you know the committees, for want of a better word, that organised and, and ran these benefits clubs um, met in the pub. So, of course, you're going to drink beer. Um, did they actually get what they wanted? Well, I mean, did the authorities agree to give them higher wages? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, mean, I kind of initially, I think it was, um, I mean, obviously the details in the book, but um, the local farmer, Mr. Henry Martin, um, had agreed to meet with um meet with the the demonstrators let's call them at this stage um and the local magistrate john vatchell um basically in order to placate the uh, the demonstrators had kind of made initial offerings of, of of increased wages um and lowering the price of bread but it kind of became pretty clear i guess from experience in other villages around the region that these promises weren't going to come to fruition um, and once it became clear that these concessions weren't going to become brought to fruition uh, the rioters basically took to looting local shops um, traveling through uh, traveling through the village making demands
Easy to understate how significant these protests were. The day after the Littleport riot, some 500 people, I believe, gathered in Ely Marketplace, and many of them were armed. The, the, you know, it was you know, this wasn't a crowd to trifle with, was it? The, well, yeah, the, the the numbers were significant, and you know, they were there were people with legitimate, genuine demands. I think um, living in in, in in particularly hard times. Um, but there's still kind of humour in it in, in, in some ways because one of the tales during the research I came across was about um, some guy who broke into, um, I think she was called Rebecca Wadlow, um, a local shopkeeper. Uh, she was actually the, the grandmother of the unpopular farmer. Um, and uh, one fella found what he thought was a packet of sugar and he ripped it open and poured it into his mouth and it turned out to be mustard powder. Um, the rioters then march on on Littleport and the numbers swell. There's some 500 or uh, 500, 500 people marching down the road to Littleport, which is only you know three or four miles down the road. Um, and there they're met with um, the magistrates from, from Littleport. And, uh, they, you know, they're making the demands about higher wages and lower prices of bread and um uh, and one one of the one of the rioters chirps up yeah and we'll have we'll have beer at tuppence a pint <laughs> which, which i thought was really good gotta get your priorities <laughs> straight right <laughs> well yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> so how did they end because i mean they did, it didn't go on indefinitely what happened um in the end to sort of bring closure to the riots local militias were brought in to break up the uh, break up the riots um, and arrests were made. Um, basically, the rioters then hightailed it back to, to Littleport, pursued by the uh, local authorities. Um, and they ended up barricading themselves into, I think it was the Georgian Dragon pub. Um, and although they were they were armed, they had, you know, hunting rifles or scatterguns or whatever it was. And I think shots were fired. Um, but actually, the only fatality was... Uh, um, was one of the rioters who was um, once they'd been dragged from the pub by the authorities uh, was making making good his escape ignored the uh, the shouts of halt or will fire and was unfortunately shot dead i think in the end they made i think they made 80 arrests and some of them were quite young weren't they they weren't it, it wasn't just all sort of men yeah, I mean, I mean, the age range there was there, there was uh, a young lad of sixteen, I think, or fourteen, um, and, and the oldest was well into his sixties. Out of the eighty, some fifty-four were actually committed to trial. Um, some some were bound over, others fined, and a number were transported to um, to Australia and to um, uh, Tasmania. Basically, fifty-four were charged, um, and five of the ringleaders were picked out. Um, they were picked out as ringleaders and uh, made an example of. And what was that example? Uh, that example was um, hanged, to be hanged, to be hung. Um, and but but interestingly enough, one of the uh, one of the magistrates at the time um, had made the point of saying. Uh, and again, this just seems so relevant in today as well. That basically, if you were there even as an observer, then you were you were in part responsible, and you were you know you were liable for any punishment meted out. Which kind of you know when you look at the government now in the process of outlawing our right to protest, chines terribly, really. So, how did the public react to the verdict? 
Well, I mean, again, again, that's interesting. It depends on what kind of end of uh, which end of the social scale you live on. You know, um, I think there was there was tremendous support for um, for the rioters amongst. Um, I, I dare say the majority of people in the area. Um, I mean, even to the point where the five were to be carted to the to the gallows, um, they could. The authorities couldn't get a uh, um, a cart. No, none of the locals would, would would lend their cart. So the horse and cart had to come from Royston, I think it was. Um, so there was kind of resentment towards the authorities, and I'm sure that some of the shopkeepers and people at the other end of the uh, social scale were quite happy about about the sentences so it's mixed but i would i got the impression that the vast majority of people were were against the the verdict i mean it was a pretty harsh verdict for people that were essentially as you say they were protesting about the severe conditions they were having to live in because they didn't have enough money to pay for food and just it's a basic human right did anything actually change as a result of these riots um for the labouring classes in East Anglia, to be honest with you, I don't think very much did change because um, you know food riots continued continued on. Um, you know, not many years later, um, you had the swing riots that broke out in the eighteen thirties, um, and William Cobbett was on his rural rides describing terrible conditions for the rural labouring classes. Um, I don't think very much did change at all. Um, the five that were hung were were, were hung as an example, um, and it's quite interesting that um, you know on the gallows, um, I think four out of the five, you know, read out their their confessions and you know were obliged to warn the public um, to steer away from drinking and cavorting um, and breaking the law in such a way. Um, but I think that they were probably reading out those statements under duress um, because, uh, you know, uh, a kind of a lecture on the political economy of the times before you're about to drop through the uh, trap door. It's not going to go down well at all, is it? Yeah, pretty, yeah, it's it was a sad end, really. It was it was an exciting time because there were people, you know, optimism was high. At first, the authorities appeared to listen to demands. Yeah, we'll drop the price of bread. We'll we'll increase the wages and stuff. But actually, that never really happened, um, and it came to a, a kind of crashing, horrible end. And those conditions, you know, um, argue, arguably persist up to this day. You know, you know, you've got people queuing outside food banks. You've got you've got nurses and teachers and all kinds of people that actually earn money that can't afford to buy their food. Um, so not a lot has changed, really. Starved of a spoonful, hang for a spoon. They dance for a day to the commoner's tune. Now five men dead for the price of bread from the Ely and Little Port riots. I usually ask my guests to contribute a dish to the season's virtual potluck supper, which, um, given today's topic, could be quite tricky. So, Josh, I'm intrigued to learn if you've chosen a dish and what dish you've chosen and why you chose it. A dish that would be suitable um, 
a, a dish that's cheap to cook um, and highly nutritious and actually is one of my favourite things to eat um, is basically bacon and butter beans in a tomato sauce. Um, I don't know if butter beans were available in 1816. Of course, they were broad beans, aren't they, really? Um, yeah, um, so caramelise an onion, um, throw in a bit of garlic, brown off some bacon, um, chuck in some fresh tomatoes or a tin of tomatoes, if you like, pinch of mixed herbs, salt and pepper, throw in the butter beans, simmer it for 15, 20 minutes and eat it with chunky bread. Absolutely fantastic. If you want to go completely continental, you can throw a bit of chorizo in there as well. Oh, and some smoked paprika. <laughs> that sounds delicious. Um, and what is next on the horizon for you? Well, I've now, I mean, since we met on the uh, uh, the committee of the Guild of Food Writers some years ago now, um, I've, I've kind of stuck my finger in lots of different pies. Um, I'm still, I, I, I write a, um, I write and illustrate a, a recipe for a magazine called Stir to Action, or just Stir. It's a, um, uh, it, it's an economics magazine about um, the new economy. It talks about cooperatives and bartering and trade and things like that. Um, but I also kind of got into um, skateboarding <laughs> at the age of 51, um, and that was an eye-opener. So um, I, I now publish books not written by me but by others. Um, I publish books written by skateboarders about skateboarding. Um, as I say, I'm involved with Commoners Choir. I run the finance. I'm one of the co-directors of the fire, uh, fire choir. Um, and I also manage a, an art space in Otley, which is where I'm talking to you from. I've got my art studio. We've got four art studios here. Um, and we have small gigs and exhibitions and things like that going on. So where can listeners get hold of this book, Food Worth Fighting For, and some of your other titles? Right. Okay. Well, um, food worth fighting for. I would urge and encourage listeners to to get the book directly from Prospect Books website. Um, Prospect Books is a small independent publisher specialising in food history and food academe. Um, it's an amazing little publisher, um, and Catherine that runs it is terrific. Um, so yeah. Get the book from the Prospect Books website and any independent bookshop, really. Try to avoid the large national chain that demands 85% discount from publishers. Um, and for God's sake, please avoid the tax-dodging behemoth that shall not be named. Yeah, Prospect Books website. Get it from there. Thank you to Josh Sutton for joining me today. There are lots of links in the show notes to help you discover more about the Ely and the Support Riots. Josh also covers many other food protests in his book, Food Worth Fighting For, so it really is worth a read. There are also links to his other books and websites in the show notes, as well as a link to the Bread and Blood song featured in this podcast, performed by the Commoners Choir. Thank you to Josh Sutton for joining me today. There are lots of links in the show notes to help you discover more about the Ely and the Support Riots. Josh also covers many other food protests in his book, Food Worth Fighting For, so it really is worth a read. There are also links to his other books and websites in the show notes, as well as a link to the Bread and Blood song featured in this podcast, performed by the Commoners Choir. This podcast was created, researched, produced, recorded and edited by me, Sam Bilton, with music and sound effects provided by zapsplat.com. 